You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guest today is Andre Norman. Andre has one of the most inspirational comeback stories you're ever going to come across. He was born into poverty, was illiterate, got caught up in a gang culture, and ultimately was sentenced to over 100 years in prison. While he was in prison, he did a two-year stint in solitary confinement, and it was there that he had this massive epiphany to want to graduate from Harvard University. And as crazy as that is, what's even crazier is he actually did it. He worked his ass off, worked his way up the prison system, developed uh, trust, and ultimately won his freedom, uh, graduated from Harvard University, and today is one of the world's leading trainers and uh, influencers in teaching other people how to be leaders and influencers as well. He is one of the world's high, most highly sought after um, speakers and trainers. The impact that he's making in the prison system and outside of the prison system is immeasurable. It is truly an inspirational story, a great honor to have him on the program, and and many uh definitions, the very epitome of an impact player that I love to talk to. So it's a great honor to speak with him. And it's uh, my pleasure to share this conversation with you. Here I am with Andre Norman. All right, I'm here with Andre Norman. Andre, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the call today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Do you go, is it Andre or Dre? Um, you, you pick it. It's the same difference to me. I've been okay. called both equal amounts of times. You signed off on your emails to me with Dre. So I was like, all right, well, I don't know if that, you know, if you had to be in, in, in the circle of influence in order to <laughs> have the pleasure. So uh, I kind of like Dre. I kind of, we can go with that. Um, well, yeah, again, thanks for uh, spending a little time with me this morning. Um, you have a, an important message and a, quite a uh, transformational story that uh, was very inspiring for me to learn more about. Um, and I'm excited to share with my audience. Uh, for those that don't know who you are, let's give a quick brief overview of who you are and a little bit about your background. And of course that will lead us into probably a million other things. So, well, right now my Andre Norman from Boston, Massachusetts. And what I do for a living is leadership development. I get to go around the world and help situations and people doing be better. Um, I've worked in Honduras when they had the highest murder rate in the world. I've worked in West Africa when they had child soldiers in the street. Hmm. When I was in Ferguson, we, our team ended the riots in Ferguson in the protest. Um, right? So they call us for like extreme crisis situations. Do you have, do you have like uh, operators that, I mean, how, what do you mean ended the violence? We flew, Ferguson was in protest for 15 months. There was a non-verdict that came out in December. And after that, some local folks from St. Louis called me and asked me to come to St. Louis and to Ferguson and to help. So I flew to Ferguson, went out in the streets at like, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, met all the guys in the street, talked to the guys in the street, found out who, what they were angry about, what they was upset about, identified their leadership. And once I identified the leadership, I started working with that cohort. I had an office at Harvard Law School at the time. So I brought the protesters from off the street at 2 a.m. I got the mayor of Ferguson, the police chief of Ferguson, brought them to um, Harvard as well. There was a guy from St. Louis named Dave Spence, who was extremely helpful. Dan Curran, another guy that was extremely helpful. Two local St. Louis guys who just cared. They wanted to see the madness come to an end. So we all went to Harvard. We had a symposium. The symposium went horrible. <laughs> in, out to Boston, you mean? 
to, at Harvard University yeah, at the wow. law school. And the symposium, we had the mayor of Ferguson, the police chief of Ferguson, Dave Spence, who had run for governor, and three of the protest leaders from the streets. Wow. All at Harvard on a panel. And then what happened is they interjected people that I didn't have control over or influence with. They weren't there for solutions. They were there for their own agenda. Mm. Derailed the whole panel. And when it was over, we went, all had dinner, minus the agitators, and was able to get some resolutions in peace. And when they all went back to Ferguson, now the mayor knows the lead protesters and they have communications. Then the guy who was the actual lead, we ran him for state rep. His name was Bruce Franks. He ran for state rep. He won. He was in the state house for two terms. And he became the guy over the police subcommittee for the state of, for the state of, um, for the country. Or excuse me, for your state. And he actually wrote crime policy with the governor around making things better. Wow. Wow. So you helped facilitate bringing the parties literally to the table together. Yes, sir. Uh, understanding what their concerns were, helping them bridge the gap a little bit. And then what, get out like, the way. So I'm from St. Louis. I was, you know, obviously I remember when that all went down. Um, had some friends that lived down there, uh, went out the day after uh, Mike Brown had been shot, you know, saw the blood on the streets, was able to connect with some of the community members down there and frankly just see the, um, see the energy of the people around. And what was really fascinating was for the first like two to three days, it was very peaceful. I mean, there was tension, but there was like the majority of the people that came out were, you know, I saw single mothers and their children. I saw, you know, families. I saw uh, gang members, opposing gang members side by side. Everybody was there seemingly saying, hey, this needs to stop. And what is the solution? How do we rise above this? And it was a really beautiful thing to see. And then, of course, you know, think the tension did spill over. But um, I'm curious to know a little bit more about what the actual what were the protesters issues? Like, where, where was the disconnect and where was the conflict? The disconnect comes from growing up in a country that you believe doesn't want you. Mm. That's step one. So for the 2.2 million people who are incarcerated, a large percentage of those are black or brown. Mm -hmm. So imagine being a 17 or 18 year old black boy going to court and they say, it's the United States of America versus you. I remember sitting in court at 18 and they said those exact words. I was in federal court. It's the United States of America versus Andre Norman. Mm. So you take in bad schools, you take in police um, supervision versus police service, you take in um, bad neighborhoods, you take in whatever you take in. I grew up in all the dysfunctioning chaos. Then at 18 years old, I sit in a room and they say United States of America versus Andre Norman. Mm. And I feel as though I never had a fair shot initially with the parents I had in the neighborhood I grew up in, then the schools I went to, and then the access and resources available for me. Now I'm getting arrested by the police for taking me to a court system who has this massive court system, criminal justice system that's put together to take this 18-year-old kid who can barely read and send me to jail for 100 years. So I get in this room, <coughs> judge has education, the DA has an education, the, my defense attorney has education, the clerk has an education, the bailiffs have educations, the jurors have educations, and I'm the only guy in the building who can't read. Mm. You have this massive system that's designed, the police all have educations, the jailers have education. I'm the one guy, it's like this whole massive system put together just for me to th send me to prison. 
I'm not saying I didn't commit bad acts. Mm -hmm. It's not about did I commit a crime? Now that I'm in the machine of the criminal justice system, it's a massive machine. Yes, yeah, so I want to get in. I, I want to definitely get into that. So, so now I am 18, me against the country, mm-hmm. and I lose, of course. Did you so not they, feel, did you feel represented? Represented? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this, this. This is a practice they need to stop. Okay. In the sense of the defense attorney and the prosecutor call each other brother and sister. Right. Those are horrible terms when you're on trial and the guy defending you was calling the guy trying to lock you up his brother. Oh, man. We don't get the nuance. Yeah. <laughs> the nuance is lost. Yeah. It's just all bad. So, I mean, it's not about, was it fair? I mean, the system is the system. It's the greatest system on earth. That's all wonderful. But when you're in it and it's you against America, that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to try to pretend like I know what that is. Although I will say, um, you know, I, I, I've, I have had many advantages and sure, even privileges growing up and uh, with education and, you know, to, to parental household, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in just my uh, very limited experience in dealing with, you know, the system, man, the facade has completely dropped away. Like, now how about this? <laughs> you know, anybody at all has ever had a problem with the IRS? Uh, yeah. So, and when the IRS sends you a letter, you're done. It's their way or nothing. It's you against the IRS, you lose. Yep. Yep. How many people do you know that's ever beaten the IRS? Right. Probably nobody. Right. So when the IRS decides that they're going to focus on you for whatever reason, those people are just screwed. Yeah. When the IRS get their bean counters and point them at you, you're just screwed. So it's that type of, it's lo- you're lost before it started. Mm-hmm. So when it says IRS says, hey, Johnny, we're doing an audit and you owe us X amount of dollars. It's done. You can pay them or not. Right. And there is no not. Right. So when it's IRS versus you, is the best way I can describe it as someone who's never been in the criminal justice system. You have, for the most part, no win when the IRS shows up at your door. Um, so tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how you, you talked about, you know, feeling like everything was against you. Give somebody who's not, um, uh, privy to that world. Give us an idea as to what your upbringing was like. Um, and well, I, so that- I grew up in the house. My mom had six kids. I was the fifth child. Hello. Did you go away? Yep. Nope. Here. Okay. I just jumped off my screen for some reason. I can still see you and hear you. Okay, cool. That works. It's got small. <laughs> well, my mom had six kids. We were living in the inner city. My dad had a habit of beating my mom because he didn't know how to communicate well. And, at the end, so I grew up in the house, first, second, third. I'm the fifth child. I'm three, four years old, and I started understanding my mother's being beat every day. And she's going through this. And at first, when I saw my mother get beat, I cried because it was traumatic. Oh, my God, my mother's being beat. And I just cried. And after that, you get mad. Like, oh, my God, this is happening again. And you get mad. Then after that, you get frustrated. Like, okay, here comes the dumb stuff. Then after frustration, you get to the point of this, it doesn't matter. And that's when you lose the piece of you that that really matters. Mm -hmm. When you get to the point of just acceptance, you know what I'm saying, then it's a problem. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, after a while of going through and going through, you finally realize that this isn't going to stop and you just come to accept it. 
And as an eight or nine year old kid, just accepting your mother's getting beat is not a good thing because it disconnects you from parts of humanity and it tells you that violence is okay. Right. Because if my mother can be hit, there's nobody on this planet that can't be hit as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And so you come, out of the, you come out of the starting gate with this negative mentality of it's okay to hit people. And then the stuff that you go through, I grew up in Boston where at the time when I was in elementary school, it was, a, it was like black kids and white kids were being forced to be bused to different schools. So in response to the busing crisis, white kids stood on the side of the road and threw rocks at us and called us names. So I'm called a nigga and a porch monkey because I'm trying to go on a bus and go to school. And then nobody came to help us. Nobody showed up and said, you know something, this is wrong. Let's go get these kids some treatment. Let's get them some counseling. We just got rocks and thrown at us. And that was it. And then finally, for me, the, my dad moved out of the house. Came home from school one day, dad's gone. It's like him and my mom just couldn't make it anymore. Nobody sat us down and said, this is a situation. This is just not going to be good. I'm going to live over there. You can see me on Fridays and Thursdays. Nothing. Gone. And how, and what age was this for you? Nine, ten. Okay. Did, so was learned, there a, a sense of relief, though, a little bit because he wasn't there to abuse her? <coughs> I mean, you don't see it as relief. You just look. Dad's been there your whole Still life. Your dad, yeah. He's dad. He's been there since day one. So just one day, the guy that's been there every single day is just gone. Now, granted, he was doing negative stuff while he was there, but at the same time, you don't look at it like that. You say, yeah. that's dad. You separate, you compartmentalize the drama and the fun stuff. But to come home and him just not being there, I took three lessons from these episodes. One, it's okay to hit people. Two, I better protect myself. And three, I have to explain myself to anybody. And as a 10-year-old kid, that's the lens I see the world. Hmm. And that's not healthy. It's not productive. It's not going to take me far. And that attitude and that lens took me straight to where people like that exist, prison. So I get, I get to middle school, I, I fall off, I'm a kid who falls through the cracks. Mom's busy working, dad's not there. I don't have the things I want. All the basic, stereotypical, drift away, I'm in the street, start getting in trouble, start getting arrested for petty stuff, and it escalates to the point where they send me to state prison. Now it's the United States of America versus Andre Norman. Mm. And my question was, where was the United States of America when I was eight years old I just wanted someone to, I, I got, I wanted a sandwich. I was hungry. I used to go to school hungry. I ate when I went to school. So why couldn't somebody give me a sandwich? And I would if you came to me in first grade and had like a really nice lunch, McDonald's back then was huge. I'd have been your best friend. Andre, I need you to read this book. Andre, I need you to do this exam. Andre, I need you to color more. Andre, I want you to work on your letters. I'd have done anything for McDonald's in the first grade, anything. But nobody can. A hamburger would have saved the country millions of dollars <laughs> and tons of agony. Hmm. But nobody stepped up and said, hey, let's help these kids at this level. I can tell you this about prison. There's not one person in prison that I met in my 14 years inside, in my 20 years since out, in 34 years of dealing with corrections. I've never met anybody in prison that didn't go to elementary school. So if you wanted to stop that guy or that lady, you could have caught him in elementary school. He was seven years old, sitting in the first grade, and could barely say his name. He would have done anything you said for something of nothing. A candy bar, a cookie, a hug, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You had him. 
for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, we could have emptied out half the prison system. Hmm. Is it that, I mean, it, it, it's that simple and that profound, I imagine, to just it's, show up and care. You can, if, right, I guarantee you right now, there'll be 200,000 people go to jail 10 years from now, on that, whatever year, 2029, 100,000 people go to jail. I guarantee of the 100,000 people, every last one of them went to elementary school someplace. Right. They're there right now. Right. So we can just ignore them right now and say, well, this kid has a bad home. This kid doesn't have food. This kid has esteem issues. Let's try to fix it while he's seven. Uh, or we can wait till he's a full-grown adult, 28 years old, with two knives in his hand, strapped up on a, on a wreck field trying to kill somebody. Right. Oh, let's go try to work with them now. Right. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much cheaper. It's yeah. so much more practical. There's so much less damage done if you get the guy or the girl while they're in first grade. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are there people trying to do that? Is, are there programs that are successful right now that are reaching kids at that age? If there's no, continu- there's no continuum. If there's a program for elementary school or early learning, early childhood learning, it doesn't go all the way through to high school. So you get a kid in the first and second grade, you provide services. He goes third and fourth grade, it's a whole different set of services. He gets to middle school, it's a whole other set of services. Whereas if you had a system to say, we know where this kid is going to end up, I guarantee you, you walk through the prison systems of America and ask them where they went. The first thing they're going to say is public school. I guarantee you, 90 plus percent people in prison went to public school. Right. Now you can go in any state, I can guarantee you, pick a state, New York City, 60% of the population came from the New York City public school system. You say in California, 60% of their prisoners came from LA public school system. You say in Massachusetts, 60% of their people came from Boston public school system. Mm-hmm. We know where they're coming from. This is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. This is not like, how do we solve HIV? This is so basic. We know exactly where they're coming from. And we know the exact metrics it takes to add up to that. We know if we drink eight beers in one hour, our blood alcohol level is going to be too high. We're going to crash our car. So we don't do it. We know if we leave a kid in a public school without proper nutrition, without proper guidance, without proper intellectual stimulation, he or she will go off the rails and end up in prison. Are, are, are we not talking on some level, though, um, filling the void of either um, an absent parent or poor parenting? Does it go even bef- you know, prior to school? And you know, obviously, we're looking at what's practical, right? But even at the core level, conceptually, is it, is it, isn't it a breakdown in the family unit? It's a complete breakdown in the family unit. And if you go look at families who are in poverty, um, They've been broken for a long time. Right. So this isn't a new, new concept of broken families. Um, these families have been broken. If you want to take the black folks all the way back to slavery, family's been broken. And they try to piece it together here or there, but you have, a, you have a set of people in a system that they don't control. So they've been broken from the time that their babies were sold or off the plantation to the next guy for whatever the reason were. Or the male... There's, I, I know there's truth to that for sure. Um, psychologically, the, the weight of carrying that history, but at the same time, um, I think that, and I, I don't know for absolute certain, but I'm, I think in the 40s and 50s, uh, the Black Family Union, Unit was 
most of the vast majority of family, black families had mother and father at home. And then right. that has trailed off since I think 60 to now it's like, you know, 25% of well, uh, the, when they created a governmental system that empowers or, and it suggests or pushes for the father to be out the house. They have a thing nice. called, um, they have Medicaid and Medicare. They have um, welfare system. They have section eight to receive any state or federal benefits. You must put the father out of the house period. Right. Now, when the, when the system was first created in the fifties and the sixties, the concept was we don't want an able-bodied man getting government assistance. So they were like, well, if he's able-bodied, he should be able to take care of his family, which was concept. So the rule was put in, able-bodied man should not be in the house. And if he is, we're not giving government assistance. So now the woman has to make a choice. Do I have the father in the house who's going to help me raise these kids, but now I don't get any money. We're going to struggle. Or do I put him out of the house and I get government assistance and we're going to go without that. And option B, we're going to have our rent paid. We're going to get these government subsidies, but we have to do it without that. So the government has created a system where it systematically pushes the father out of the house. I'm not saying that it's the government's fault, but that's the system. If, if, you, if you're a guy with two kids and a, and a girlfriend and you can't get a good job, then she needs to go on government assistance, then you automatically have to get out of the house. Why not say that it's the government's fault? I mean, I look at that and I go, I, I mean, I know that the spirit of it, at least I, I'd like to believe that the spirit of it was well-intended and that maybe at, at a point in time, like you said, hey, if there's nobody, if there's not a well-abled person there to help provide, like we can't just let these people, uh, you know, fall by the wayside, let's support them. But where it's morphed into, it really does feel like it's a- Nobody's uh, made the change. The initial, I'll say in the interest of fairness that the initial law or policy was based on the times. There was in the 60s and the 50s, people prided work. Now, if you could get a job as a black man in the 60s, there's another story. But the baseline is I'll give the spirit of the law and the policy when initially put out as a good thing. Right. Now that you've seen over the last 50 years, the back end of pushing the dad out of the house, you should say, OK, we shouldn't. I would love to say, let's rescind the dad in the house rule because, okay, dad's not in the house. Now, what is a byproduct of that? All 80% of these kids are going to jail. Yeah. 80%, uh, so yeah, you're, I mean, you're uh, winning for losing. The statistics are, are beyond obvious. Uh, you look at, um, I think it's, 90, it's upwards of 90% of those that are incarcerated come from fatherless homes. Violence increases, addictions increases, abuse. I mean, this <coughs> goes on and on and on. What, how do, so at how some do we, point, we have to say, yeah. this policy about dad not in the home and government assistance needs to change. That's all I'm saying. Because right now, in 2019, I can have a wife or girlfriend with two kids, and she can get government assistance living in house one. I can go live in house two and get government assistance for myself. I can get food stamps and section eight for me and live apart from my family. So the government will pay for me to live by myself, but it won't pay for us to stay together. Hmm. Not that the government should just be adopting our whole country, but right. if you have a system that pays for the mother and the two kids and then the same system pays for the father, you save money by putting them in the same house because they will legitimately pay two sets of rents, two sets of food stamps, for the same family, but by law or policy, they can't be in the same building, mm -hmm. which makes no sense. No. And the, if it, forget it doesn't make sense. 
the results aren't what we want. Now that we've had 50 years of data, the results are horrendous. So right. unless somebody says, no, something, this policy doesn't work, let's change it. Right. Uh, so let's go back to uh, United States versus Andre. So what, what, at that point, did you enter the prison system? I go into prison at 18 and I ended up staying for 14 years. When I got to prison, it was this, I went in scared and nervous and Kylie didn't know what was going to happen. When I got there, the craziest thing, it was a reunion of all my friends from special needs classes. It was a reunion of all my friends from the principal's office. Hmm. It was a reunion of all my friends who got kicked off the football team or quit band. It was a reunion of all my friends who used to cut school and run downtown. It was a reunion of all my friends who were scared to read and stand in front of the class and do the assignments. We all, everybody was there. Everybody was. And even the people I didn't know came from the same scenario. Mm-hmm. They were the kids who wouldn't read at the front of the class. They were the kids who didn't do homework. They were the kids on free lunch. It was just a giant reunion of all the people who didn't, that you saw on track not to make it. Right. So, so uh, at 18 years old, you go in, was there a part of you that felt like, I mean, if you're seeing all your buddies. Yeah, I was comfortable. I'm like, yeah, I'm home. This is cool. It was was like the smart kids go to college and the bad kids go to prison. When you went from middle school to high school, how many kids at at the high school did you know? Lots of them. When I went from high school to prison, there was tons of people I knew there. Mm-hmm. Tons. Mm-hmm. It was like a write-up. It was like, that's the next level. If you're a bad kid or a troubled kid, you go elementary, middle, high school, prison. That was just the rap. That was what it was. So it was that, that same group of kids that three years ahead of you that you're going to see. I think you almost said a write Were you about to say a rite of passage? Yes, a rite of passage. Yeah. I mean, what was that like? Was there, I mean, I've heard some of the videos that you had online and stuff, but um I'd love for you to to expand on what your experience was and where the dysfunction was in the, you talked about earlier in this call, the machine, the system. The, the dysfunction was, it was, I was like a, when I got to prison, the best way I can describe it is like taking a goldfish and throwing them in a, in a, in a, in a goldfish bowl full of water. <laughs> you just, I was a fish to water. Mm. I had been raised, conditioned, and trained to be in that environment. I go all the way back from being on punishment to juvie probation to being on probation to having to clean. I mean, I've been so conditioned mentally, emotionally, and physically for that space. When I finally got there, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. And it's like, you're at elementary school, then you move to the middle school, you move to high school, it's like, you belong. Like, yeah, I've arrived. This is my time. It was like, I was just, it was my time. It was my place. I'm dysfunctional, I'm violent, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. I don't know how to follow through on things. I quit. You know what I'm saying, I mean, this is the perfect place for me. This is where, this is, the building is full of quitters. Mm-hmm. These are the people who finished nothing. <laughs> we all have finished nothing. We didn't finish school. We didn't finish courses. We didn't finish, I got a thousand things. We quit on everything that was made available to us. And we took the easy way out. And the easy way is available. But the easy way truly isn't easy once you get past the criminal justice courtroom. Mm-hmm. Then it gets really hard. Mm-hmm. And the worst part about the system is geared to keep you there. It's not geared to turn you around. The criminal justice system is not set up to make better people. It's set up to manufacture more people just like it. 
Mm-hmm. Do, um, oh gosh, I don't even know where to go with that because there's so many different. I, I know there's so many um, different things that are fucked up with the whole uh, system. You talked uh, on some of the stuff that I saw about you about the financial engine behind this whole thing. Can you share a little bit about what actually goes on in prison and how the? Uh, well, I mean. Life, there's, there's, there's a black market in prison. If I was selling drugs and I was in the street, when I go to jail, I didn't stop being a drug dealer. If I was using drugs while I was in the street, you put me in jail, I didn't stop being a drug user. If I was beating people up in the street and you throw me in jail, I didn't stop becoming, I didn't become less violent. So prison is the same as it was on the street. It's just a confined space and everything you do bounces back real fast. So... <laughs> It's not like I can shoot you and drive across town. If I do something to you, I'm walking like two blocks away from you. Mm-hmm. So every, it's just you have all people who are hustlers, scammers, um, violent, whatever we were or whatever we are, you just put us all in a confined space. That's it. If you ever go to the NBA All-Star game, the first five rows are all NBA players. The whole building is just NBA players. A third of the building is NBA players. Because that's their thing. And it's like, you could grab anybody out of the stands and start a game. You could pick a five out of the stands and might beat the guys on the court. Next time you look at the NBA All-Star game, look at the first three rows. It's going to be all NBA players, new and old. That's what prison is. <laughs> you look at the first 10 rows, it's all the top criminals for the last 30 years in one building. Mm. Recipe for disaster, I would imagine. No, it's um, recipe for criminal activity. So if you put... 50 basketball players in the, in the building expect a game to start. When you put a thousand criminals in the building, expect for some criminal activity to start. Well, how do you, I mean, the, the ignorant mind, uh, for, so forgive my ignorance, but where else would you put, um, you know, people? No, you put, they need, they, if you've committed a crime, the system that we have isn't the problem. The, the system of incarceration is not the problem. The system of incarcerating people is not the issue. It's who do you choose to incarcerate? Why do you choose to incarcerate? And how long do you hold them there for? That is a problem. And what do you do with them while you have them? If somebody robs a bank, they need to go to jail. If somebody shoots somebody, they deserve to go to jail. They deserve to be punished. If somebody hurts my family, they deserve to be punished. If I hurt someone else's family, punishment is not the issue. The question is, one... Why are they in this situation? Well, we could have gave this kid a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and some blue Kool-Aid and a hug in a sixth grade, and he wouldn't be here right now. So you allowed me to get to this point, even though you saw me coming. That's step one. And now that I'm here, okay, I sell crack because that's what's popular in my neighborhood. I'm not even going to ask you how crack got to my neighborhood, but that's a whole nother story. Crack comes to my neighborhood from whatever it comes from. And lo and behold, the crack laws are designed in targeting kids in the inner city, AKA black kids. So powder cocaine and crack cocaine is exactly the same. It's just the form it's in. It's like ice, it's like ice and water. <laughs> if you have, a, you have a tray of ice, you have a glass of water. I'm gonna give you a mandatory minimum of 20 years if you have ice in a glass. If you have water in a glass, I'm gonna give you five months probation. It's the same, it's no differential. Mm-hmm. It's just the form that it's in. Mm-hmm. So if you take powder cocaine and put it into a, a hard form slash ice versus it being liquid, oh my God, 
it, the punishment quadruples. Why? If the punishment is for having a narcotic, what difference does it make what form it's in? Coke is Coke. But for some reason, Coke in a, a, a rock form is, gets, you it gets you a mandatory minimum of 20 years when Coke in a powder form doesn't. Well, who uses powder Coke? Who deals with crack Coke? Well, the inner cities of America was dealing with crack cocaine. The suburbs and the doctors and the other people were dealing with powder cocaine. So once it turned into crack, we got mandatory minimum sentences. So you targeted an entire demographic of people with a law specifically to give them a five, 10 times more t um, years in prison mm -hmm. for the same drug. That mm -hmm. wasn't accidental. That wasn't anything. For those who don't know, crack cocaine used to be, it's called base. You should take powder cocaine, you take so much powder cocaine, so much baking soda, you put it in a bottle or a test tube with some water, and you heat it up and powder with baking soda and water, it becomes a it becomes a rock format. Mm -hmm. And you can smoke it. That's it. It used to be co powder cocaine with um baking soda is crack. Then they should that's they used to do that for years back in the 80s. And somebody said, Hey, why don't we just make it in large quantities? Why they used to have to buy powder cocaine and convert it. Then somebody got smart and said, we'll convert it and then sell it to you. Hmm. But it's the same stuff, but the law was targeting inner city black kids, for lack of a better term. And that's, that law was on the books and it wiped out a whole generation. The drug itself wiped out a whole generation and the crime wiped out the other half. Hmm. And you can't tell me that if somebody can get up here and tell me the differential between powder and crack, I want to know it. And why you give one guy 20 years minimum, the other guy is eligible for probation. Right. Well, it, it, some of that, I think, comes down to just money as well. I mean, obviously, you get better representation, better lawyers, connections, you, you know. Jail is for two people. It's for quitters and it's for poor people. Generally, rich people or people with finances don't go to jail. It's just a given. That's my point. Matter. So in other words, like if a doctor <coughs> caught with, with uh, you know, ice, basically, isn't he or she going to be able to pay their way to minimize their, their sentence or whatever? Like, isn't there a financial component behind a lot of these sentences? Too? So the way the courthouse is set up, when you, let's say me and you both get arrested tomorrow for possession of marijuana or cocaine. We both go to court. The judge is going to look at you and say, okay, your bail is $5,000. He's going to look at me and says, Andre, your bail is $5,000. The difference is your parents can pay your bail. Right. So you get to go home. Right. My parents can't pay my bail. They're on government assistance. They don't have a free 5000 So I have to stay in jail. So step one, I'm staying in jail because I'm poor. You're not going home because you're innocent. You're not going home because you're guilty. You're going home because your parents have the money to pay your bail. Right, right. So because you can afford bail, you go home. Because I can't afford bail, I'm going to spend the next 18 months in a prison cell. Fast forward, once you are in the street, your lawyer can continue your case <coughs> and almost to infinity. You just keep pushing the case. Push. So it happens January 1st, 2020. You might not go to trial until January 2023. <coughs> Give me a six-month thing. Just keep pushing. The judge doesn't care. Nobody's in peril. You had a crack case. You had a weed case. The lawyer keeps asking for continuances, continuances, continuances. Everything is four to six months out. Before long, it's two years later. <coughs> Nobody cares about this case. It's two years old. Get a kid probation, let it go. 
that's what happens. That, that alone, that one simple example alone is the difference of an entire lifetime. You, yeah. you, you take somebody and you put them in jail for, I don't care who it is, for 18 months, 24 months, that's going to probably fundamentally change that person. I mean, they're going to be forced into uh, no, a lifestyle that... I would say 12 months in. I've been in jail for 12 months. And I can't, I'm going to sit here to the end of this trial, which is going to be maybe another year. So then the DA comes and says, listen, you've been in for 12. We'll give you a two-year sentence if you plead guilty. So you're going to do another year and then you can go home. Or you can go to trial and I'm going to give you eight years if I find you guilty. So the guys say, well, I already, I know I did it. I'm going to sit here anyways. Give me the two years. I got one in, I got one to go. When you've been sitting in jail for 12, 13, 14 months awaiting trial, your perspective and outline or viewpoint of what are you going to do is drastically different. And if you're home, going to the mall every day. Right. And it's just kick, kick, kicking it, kicking it, kicking it. And it's like, well, you've been out for two years with no problems. And that says to the DA, well, well, maybe it was a mistake. He had a bad day. The lawyer says, hey, my, my client's been out for two years with no problem. Why do we need to send him to jail? He's a law-abiding citizen. So the DA says, you're right. He has been home for two years with no problem. He gives him a slap on the wrist and lets him go. Otherwise, the other guy has been in jail for 18 months. And he can't say, I've been a good citizen. So it's like, hey, you're in there. Let's make a deal. Yeah. I give you this much more time, we'll call it a wash. Uh, and, and aren't the, aren't the uh, attorneys turning over all the time too? I mean, you get different representation. You get people that don't, you, you know, you pour your heart out to somebody and say, this is what's actually going on. This is my circumstance. And then they start to fight for you, but then they, you know, get hired away or whatever. And then somebody else comes in. The defendant's office, it's, it's a crapshoot. You roll the dice, you get someone who really cares, is really enthused and cares about your case. But if I'm the public defender, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overworked and I'm underpaid. Right. And then after a while, then you're going in, the, the public defender is fighting the machine. And the public defender is fighting the machine, and it's horrible. And it's, it's hard for them. So they get burnt out fast. They get ground up fast. So you got 50 cases. You're trying to give your all. You can't give your all to 50 cases. You can't give your all to 70 cases. You can't give your all to 20 cases. You go to any top law firm. If anybody of substance walked into a law firm and said, listen, I'm going to hire you. You're the number one law firm in the state. Represent me. And that person says, sure, I'll take your case, but I got 30 other cases with it. Them working at the same act time. You're going to walk out the door. Mm-hmm. You will walk right out the door. Like, what? You're going to handle my case and 30 other cases at the same time. You can't focus on me or at least four of us. Now I'm going to do you and 30 more. And they might give me 10 more in the process. You're not going to take that lawyer. Right. It's just, it's just not a good deal. But that's what we're faced with. And then you have the defendant, guilty or not, you have an uneducated person walking into a system where everybody's educated and educated in the law and they're at a, they're at a loss. They lost before they walked in. They can barely read, let alone legal, legal jargon. Mm-hmm. So you're in a system that you don't understand, being governed by people that you don't know, locked up in a prison that you can't really get a fair shot at, and it's just all bad. It could what? be better. But it's just not. Nobody's trying collectively to make the system better. Right. I've seen people held in jail for 30, 40 days because they owed $50 fine. Well, the cost to hold somebody for 30 days is drastically more than the $50 fine that he was facing. Yeah. That doesn't make sense to me at all. It makes sense if the system is designed to hold you. 
So in the city where I live, I grew up in Boston, the police will go out in the summertime and ride around in cars or bikes. They'll just pull up on people and stop you in the street. And you got to give them your name, your ID, and produce some kind of ID. They'll take your name and they'll write it in the system. You are officially in the police system. They just ride around the neighborhoods and tag people. They just want to just spot check. They literally ride around the neighborhood and spot check. They'll mm-hmm. see 10 kids on the corner. They'll pull up. Everybody got to produce ID. They'll ride up the street, see 10 more kids. Everybody got to produce ID. And they go home, they go back to the station. They said, we found these 10 kids on Main Street. Put their name in. These 10 kids on Met. These 10 kids. These 10 kids. Now, let somebody get shot on Main Street. Those nine guys will be pulled in. Right. Those nine guys are going to get a visit. Just because you're sitting in front of your house and the police come around the corner, they have the right to stop. They don't do that in the suburbs. Right. No, they they don't. don't ride around on bikes and just pull people over and just demand identification. And right. if you don't have it, they can take you to jail. They don't do We are policed. We're not in the inner cities. We're more like um, we're being policed in the sense of we're not, they're not here to protect us. They're here to protect the community around us from right. us. Right. You feel targeted. You feel like... Uh, not targeted. It's just like, listen, we're the bad guys. And that right. goes back to the United States of America versus Andre Norman. Right. And the mindset. Now, there's conditions that lead to that. There's circumstances that produce that. But as an 18-year-old kid, I'm not looking at the nuances and the details. All I know is eight times I go outside, I got 20 cops in my face talking about giving me your ID. Right. What I'm hearing from you right now is like I'm getting a, a representation of the hopelessness, the frustration, the, uh, the psychological conditioning of the reality of a lot of uh, inner city kids that are growing up without fathers, abuse, uh, possible, possible drug addictions, or there's drugs around you, and you have a, a force that's kind of looking at your every move, or even just for no reason whatsoever, saying, Hey, you got to, you're guilty until proven innocent instead of you're innocent. guilty to proven innocent. In the back end of the scenario, the cops have to do their jobs. Cool. So let's say it happened to my son. The cops write up on my son, they want his ID, and he comes home, he's going to tell me. Because I'm dad, I'm going to have the conversation with him. I'm going to explain to him the situation. I might even take him out to the police station. I can do some stuff to show him that the cops aren't against him, per se. They're not targeting him. They're just doing their job. And this is the type of neighborhood we live in, unfortunately. But there's nobody for these kids to go home to that can explain anything. Mm-hmm. They just have to, they have to figure it out for themselves. So you got a group of 17-year-old kids on the corner or 14-year-olds trying to process the police system. Now, there's a system and a reason for the system, but the 14-year-old kid doesn't process the system or the whys. All he knows is what he's feeling. Now, if he could go home to dad, and dad can explain to him the system and how to deal with it, how to confront it, and he might take him to some events. There's like the PAL leagues. There's all kinds of ways to have positive interaction with cops, but the 14-year-old kid doesn't have access to that. Right. All he knows is I'm being harassed. All he knows is I'm being targeted. Now, I work with police and I work with criminal justice specialists all the time. So I see them now at 52 drastically different than when I saw them when I was 14. Because all I saw was a guy with a gun on his hip saying, give me your ID and mm-hmm. you better not run. Mm-hmm. What, what do you see now? Now I see people who have to be law enforcement, who do care and want to make a difference. And they're going out. I see programs in existence now and things police do that I never thought was humanly possible when I was 14. I used to think the police woke up for the sole purpose of harassing me. Now I see cops, I see DAs, I see judges, I see solicitors and D- 
trying to actually make a difference. But as a 14-year-old kid, the district attorney in your neighborhood that's trying to make a difference, you don't engage. Right. The judge who's really trying to go out of their way to make a difference, you have no knowledge of. All you know is what comes to your doorstep, and that's the cop with the gun demanding your ID. Sure. So I couldn't see what I see now because I was stuck in that neighborhood, and I can only see what was in front of me. Right. There were tons of people in criminal justice trying to do great things for my life, but I didn't know they existed. Because in the same way, they have, they have their own sense of the machine that they're up against and the bullshit of the, the legal system and the red tape that they have to get through. And, you know, I, I mean, I have friends that are cops that, that uh, went in with all the, the, the intention of, you know, uh, putting the right guys behind bars, but really there to serve and help uplift people as well. And they're like, dude, the paperwork that they have to do, the endless, the politics that they have to face, the corruption in their own, you know, and I don't mean widespread, but just the, just the politics alone. And not even if it's uh, based in corruption, but just, you don't know the right people, uh, quotas you got to have to, you have to, you know, it's like, it's it's just a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough business. Yeah. Um, uh, It's a little, it's a little mind numbing. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, the, the baseline is the 14-year-old kid who was left in a school, no sandwiches, no hugs, no coach. I mean, if, you, if you're athletically gifted, people swarm to you. If you're academically gifted, people swarm to you. But if you're just a kid who's a tweener, you're not really athletic, you're not really super smart, you're just a regular kid, you're in trouble. I have a best friend that I, I met when I was in junior high school. I was in junior in high school. Her name's Morgan. She's from Miami. We met on a trip. I would say we're identical as far as our attitudes, our personalities, everything. We became best friends. She was actually like my best friend for life. The difference was her parents were rich. So her father would write a check and send her to private school. So she went to private school since day one, all the way through the high school, all the way through the college. So the stuff that he wasn't doing, the headmaster was doing, the councils were doing, the teachers were doing, they had people on staff to do. So she got all, she didn't get the emotional stuff but she got everything else that she needed to be successful. Mm-hmm. So we had the same emotional problems, but she had the academics and the supports and it's school that walked her through despite her emotional problems. So my emotional problems are the same exact as hers, yes. except for I went to a horrible school that didn't have the ability to do the wraparound services to walk me through because nobody's writing a check at that level. So my son goes to a private school. Right. And he has all the wraparound services he needs and then some if he has a bad day. He's going to get through high school. He's going to get into college. And he, just because the system is geared for him to do that because I'm writing a check. What would you say to the person who says, hey, it's, you know, I, I, you were dealt the hand that you were dealt. I was dealt the hand that I was dealt. Uh, I, Yes, I grew up in a two-parent home. Yes, uh, my parents did well financially. Why is that my problem? How do I? I have my own problems that are, you know, as as a problems. As a 14-year-old kid, it's not your problem. As a 19-year-old kid, it's not your problem. What I'm saying is, we have a country where people are dying as a result of this not being fixed. Because at 16, 17, when this isn't being fixed, I'm out hurting somebody. So it's not your problem, but let's go, to the, let's go to the person. Let's take the grandmother who lives down the street from me. 
and her grandson is going to get murdered in three years because there's a guy in juvie who's coming home who hasn't had a dad, who hasn't had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, who hasn't had a hug in forever. So this kid's going to come out of juvie at 15, angry and upset, and he's going to see this kid whose grandmother's doing everything in the world for him, and he's going to see the new pair of sneakers he has and the new chain he has, and he's going to want to take it from him. When he tries to take it, he, he ends up killing him because the kid didn't want to give it to him. What do we say to that? Let's sit that grandmother on this call. And that grandmother says, okay, people, it's not your problem. But I can tell you, just because I got a crystal ball, that in three years, a kid's going to come out of juvie who needs all these services. He's going to kill my grandson because he doesn't get him. Will you help me? Will somebody help me by helping this kid become a better person so he doesn't kill my grandson? Because I can't afford to move. I really don't want to move. I like my house. I like my neighborhood. But this kid's going to get out of juvie in three years and kill my grandson over a pair of sneakers I bought him. Uh, how do we not how do we not say to that lady we will help help you i just got emotional when you said that man because that's what i keep hearing like like the um the people that i know that are that are in um a shitty situation for lack of a better term um the energy that i sitting in my my armchair at home growing up hearing this there's there is there was that part of me that was like hey i'd love to help i want to help how do i help you know i i start to step out and try to help and then you get you know there's pressure like oh you think just because you're you know you're white and rich that you all of a sudden can help me whatever like so there's there's pushback there there's pressure there to like well but okay but fine but how do i help right there's there's that sense of hopelessness to try to help there's also a part of that's like fuck it like that's not my problem i don't know how to help i can't help I have my own shit that I'm dealing with. I have my own emotional issues. I have, my father wasn't around, even though we had money. Like I have my own psychological battles that I'm trying to fight. But the thing that really cut through to me was what you just said, which was, this isn't a sense of, uh, my interpretation of it growing up was often like, a, a, a victim of circumstance as opposed to what I'm hearing now, what I connect to better more, which is what you just said, which is like, help me, help me. I'm, I'm dying. Literally my family's dying. Uh, we don't have the resources. We don't have the, the connections. We don't have the education in some cases. Help us help me. When I see black lives matter, that's what I hear. Like, we're just saying, can you do what, do I matter please to you as a human being? Can you please come and help me? I need help. That's the message that I hear that like evokes. When I hear somebody say, well, I'm this uh, person who lives in another neighborhood. I got my own problems. What can I do? I'm this one person. Well, this is the thing about suburban schools that I noticed. They work. They actually function well and they produce good kids who can read, write, and count. So if you just brought the systems, the police in the suburbs work. There's not a lot of kids getting shot down. There's not a lot of kids hanging on the corner. It works. So can you bring the systems from the suburbs to the city? We don't need you to come and like adopt everybody, but the school systems, MICDS works. Right. MICDS works. So can the, the people who fund all the private, that's a, you have to pay to go there. Ain't no public school. Yeah. It works. 
can we get the system from MICDS over to Roosevelt High School? Can we do some teacher training, some exchange? To, I mean, we don't need to is, do the is, kids. Is, it this, is the system the cause, though, or is that a symptom of something even more fundamental uh, in uh, the family unit, like we talked before? Granted, uh, there are, there, there's additional problems other than just the system, but I guarantee you if there's a rash of suicides at MICDS, they're going to come up with a solution. They have a rash of overdoses at MICDS. They're going to come up with a solution. Sure. A yes. few years ago, they had some racial issues with some people making videos. They came up with solutions. You know why? Because yeah. their system, their ecosystem is built to, when problems come, we have a response, we figure it out, and we keep it moving. Right. So they have a system that's set up for, there's a lot of single parent homes in MICDS, a lot of divorces in MICDS, a lot of people, parents are drinking wine over the top at MICDS. There's tons of drug use at MICDS. But those kids manage to get through drug use, divorce, single parent, emotional distraught, and a bunch of other stuff. They make it through high school and get to college. They still graduate like 99% of their kids somehow with all the same emotional baggage. So my thing is they figured out how to deal with kids' emotional baggage and get them through. Can we get that system? Yeah. Can we get a piece of that system? Can we even have a conversation about how that works? I mean, that system and that, that ecosystem, is it not just a collection of individuals and that, and that at the beginning of, or at the, yeah, at the beginning of the day, doesn't it start with the individual to say, I demand a higher standard. I demand, you know, I got to fight through the adversity. I got to push through the bullshit. You like, gotta, like, it, like you did, you know? It, and no, like, no, I didn't do it when I was an adult. I didn't do it. When I was 14, 15, I didn't know any, 99% of what I know now. I was 14, sure, I was clueless. But if a whole generation did what you did and, 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 and is having the experience, had the experience that you had and now is uh, producing, you know, children of your own in a wildly different experience, we could solve it in one generation. If we, if, I'm not being if the people, no, if the people who run the suburban towns and they run these systems at work, all the big companies got big because somebody came and showed them how to grow a company. So the 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 baseline has to start as how do we want to fix it? I would say prison reform starts at elementary school. It doesn't start at the penitentiary. Right. If you said Andre, we can go to the prison and invest a hundred million dollars and probably make better, better people. We can go to the elementary school, invest a hundred million dollars and make sure that these kids go to jail, save the babies. Period. Prison reform starts at kindergarten. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. If you want to start prison reform or get prisons under control, stop people from going. Mm -hmm. Then once you stop people from going, now let's fix who's there. Who's coming home next? And what we've done in South Carolina is we've taken the most problematic, challenging people, we're teaching them to be leaders. So I have a unit, half my unit is doing life sentences. They have horrendous crimes. They've been extremely problematic in and out of jail. And I'm, I'm taking them and I'm training them to be leaders. They're gonna be in jail anyways. Mm -hmm. They know what right from wrong and they actually have a heart. They just never been asked to show it. Yeah. They've never been given a chance to show it. Yeah. So I know because I used to be them. Yeah. And somebody gave me a chance to show my heart. Yeah. And then I realized, wow, I can be a good guy. 
I can make a difference. I can impact people in a positive way. And I started this while I was in prison. In the last eight years of my sentence, I just kept doing it and kept doing it to the point now I've been home 20 years helping people all over the globe. But it's not, I didn't become a global international speaker because I said so. Right. Because when I was sitting in prison and nobody cared about me and the world was against me, United States of America versus Andre, I did the dream that I could go to Harvard University. I did to think that I could become a successful person. Where did that come from? It came from hoping against hope and not caring about what society said anymore. Yeah, fuck yeah. Society told me I couldn't. My parents told me I couldn't. My friends told me I couldn't. But I finally said, when I was in solitary confinement in a cell with a knife in my hand, I said, F this, I'm going to be successful. That's what I do now. When I walk into this prison, I'm leaving. When I get off this call, I'm going straight to a prison. I, I run a prison. I'm going, I'm in South Carolina. I'll be in prison about an hour after this call is over. And I go in, I tell them, when I was in solitary and the world told me I couldn't, that's what this program is. Yeah. In that moment, when you have that one thought against all odds, that's what this program is. What, what was the lowest point that you experienced in prison and, and how, did you, how did you get out of that culture and the conditioning and the influence of going down a path of hopelessness and despair? My lowest to- point in prison, I was in solitary confinement for two attempted murders. I just got convicted up in prison. And I was a third ranking gang member in the state. And my mother came to see me in solitary confinement. When she came in, she said, Andre, how did you get in jail, in jail? And she just couldn't understand what I was doing and who I'd becoming. And she looked at me and I'm talking to gang talk. I'm talking to tough guy talk. And I'm like, yeah, I'm moving up. I'm making stat. I, I was just talking crazy. And she looked at me and she, she started crying. And she left. And I'm thinking something wrong with her. I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with her. I'm winning. In my mind, I thought I was winning. I just tried to kill some people. I'm locked. I just got 10 years added to my sentence. I'm locked in a cell 24 hours a day. I got to see my mother's in chains with chains on. And I think I'm winning. Hmm. You couldn't convince me at that moment I wasn't winning. I thought there was something wrong with my mom. I so disappointed and crushed her that day that I didn't even see it. Wow. It wasn't until I got my life together. Ask, me where, ask, ask my mother where I'm at now. Oh, my son's in South Carolina prison trying to teach people how to do and be better. Where was he yesterday? He was in St. Louis trying to help a company make a turnaround and do some outreach. Where was he last week? Oh, he was out in California at a youth center talking to some kids. Where's he going to be next week? He's going to be down in Miami running a seminar. Never again will my mother be embarrassed to say my name. Hmm. When did Never you again will she cry because her son has gone crazy. When did you realize that those were not tears because she had her own issues, but it was because she was... It was a few years later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the moment, I thought, oh, my mom's bugging. Oh, she don't get it. She, <laughs> I, I said, she don't get it. I really thought that. She doesn't get it. Oh, man, what, a, what an image. Uh, so uh, it was not a t- until a couple of years later. Was it just because... Did you just get fed up with the whole... Like, you how- reach a point... You every, everybody in prison and everybody in life has their epiphany moment. There are people right now working in a company, never been to prison, never go to prison, and they hate their job. And they're going to wake up one day and say, I hate this job, and they say, I want to do something different. And then they get up and they go back to work. There are some people in abusive relationships right now. They say, I hate this relationship. And they'll get off the call with their friends and go right back to the relationship. There's some people who drink too much. They'll say, I'm never going to drink again. I'm done drinking. I know it's no good for me. I'm treating myself horrible, and they'll go right to the bar. You have that epiphany moment, then there's nothing to back it up. 
when I had my epiphany moment, luckily for me, a school teacher came into my life and helped me back it up, a wow. GED teacher. Mm. And she, she believed, I said, I wanted to do this. And she believed in me. I said, I want to go to Harvard. And she said, sure. Sounds like a great idea to me. Mm. And she helped me get my GED. We sat together for three or four months while I got my GED going towards that goal. Normally, the people surrounding you want the old you. They want the drinker. They want the party animal. They want the liar. They want the person to show up and be miserable in the next booth from them or the next cubicle. Nobody really wants you to be better off because it means that they can be better off. So mm -hmm. there's a term, misery loves company. When I had my epiphany, I was able to actually stop building momentum towards it. And I just kept going. I said, listen, I'm just going to keep going. And it's been 28 years. Damn. I'm still going. <laughs> Hell yeah. So you left, you left, uh, you got out of prison. What was that like walking out after all those years? It was scary. It was scarier coming out than going in. Really? Wow. When I came home, TV, I mean, ATMs were talking to you. There were cell phones. The internet had just come out. Oh, there were man. white people jogging in the hood. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, what is this? How the hell? I'm like, yo, this is not what happened when I left. It was, where I live, white folks wouldn't come around now. They live next door to me talking about keep your music down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> walk on the sidewalk, buddy. Put it on the curb. Take it off the curb. What are you talking about? Right. Walk on the curb all the time. Not anymore. That's just not a. Um, so it was just like the world was different, and it was. Imagine, how about this? This is crazy. There was no ATM cards when I went to prison. The the, the contrast of that in just what was it a decade? 12, 12 years? Did you 14, say fourteen? Fourteen years. There was no ATM card when I went to prison. Wow. About this. Somebody who went to prison in 2000, 1999, December, they go to prison. There was no internet. AOL, AOL dial-up hadn't even come out yet. Dude, that's, that's a, you know, it's hard to think of all the change that we've been through because we, it's been no, tragic. No, no, no AOL dial-up. Yeah. AOL <laughs> dial-up came out in 2000. That's Did not exist. Wow. When I first, first came home, you set your yeah. towel http dot dot backslash it was like three websites right. in the whole world right. when i came home right. I, i'm like yeah like internet what's this i don't know there was right. nothing there they, we, the guy in my house was a computer dude and i was in the program and he's it was like three websites for the whole world <laughs> and that's what the world was right so you got out until in 2000 right there was no internet no ATM cards, no driving cars, no electric cars. You can just keep going down the list. <laughs> Go down the list. Yeah. No smartphones. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just keep going. No, no desktop computers. No FaceTime. No, no, none of this stuff. None of, somebody's about to walk out of prison next month who's been locked up for 19 years into a whole nother planet. Oh, dude, that's wild. That's wild to think about. Um, <clears throat> so if we could just shift a little bit into the work that you're doing now, um, the leadership development. So what are some of the principles that you're teaching? Let's start with that. I teach men that they have to be men. Let's go back to the baseline. Yeah. Men have to be men. Men have to be fathers. Men have to be protectors. Men have to be teachers. Men have to be hunters, not of each other, but of knowledge and of a better life. Love that. So the... Entrepreneur, I use the entrepreneurship spirit because entrepreneurs get stuff done. They create stuff that doesn't exist. They find a way to get it done at their own sacrifice. 
So I teach entrepreneurship training and skill sets to help these men become better people. Is it, is it uh, inaccurate to say that a lot of the, if I was, if I was born in a different situation, like I, I could easily see myself in jail because the system that I was born into as cushiony and padded as it was, I still was frustrated with it. Like I still didn't feel seen. I still didn't feel oh, like you go to jail from your situation. If your parents didn't want to pay your bail. Very true. Very true. I mean, I've, I've, that's not to say that I wouldn't, but um, is, is it inaccurate to say that there's a lot of inmates that have that entrepreneurial spirit that are willing to, to go there, to blaze their own trail and, and great businessmen, wrong business is what we always say. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Great businessman. Yeah. Um, are you, uh, what's, what's, if you could share, like, what's a good case study uh, of somebody that you've helped and, and the transformation that they've made to give people a, a sense of the impact that your work is doing? Okay. We'll, we'll go back to Ferguson. Okay. Michael Brown Jr. died. And as a result, Black Lives Matter protests, a lot of things happened. And we came, we did work in Ferguson. We helped get people on the same page and move forward. And it's been a few years now, six years. And the one thing that's been constant that has not changed is Michael Brown Sr. still doesn't have his son. Mm -hmm. Forget who you blame. Forget if who was right or wrong. At the end of the day, that father is without his son, mm -hmm. regardless who's to blame. And he has to deal with that. And every day he wakes up, his son is gone. And when he wakes up now, the world is screaming Black Lives Matter, Michael Brown Jr. They don't know that man. They don't even know his son. I watch movies and I see quotes and people say Black Lives Matter, Michael Brown Jr. I'll see rappers, Michael Brown Jr., Black Lives Matter, Ferguson. Everybody has commentary on what's going on in Ferguson and what's going on in his life. Who don't even know him? He just became a slogan, like have coke and a smile. It's like, really? Nobody knows this guy. And he deals with his pain every day that his name and his son's name is just being flung around like water, like nothing. And the world is just going on around him. And it's like, he's still stuck. I've been mentoring Michael for three years now. Mm. And I've helped him create himself to be a forgiveness coach. So he actually came to South Carolina for three months and he created a course on forgiveness. Wow. Wow. So Michael Brown Sr. is not just an angry man who's upset and disgruntled. He's learned to channel his situation into something that's way more powerful than people thought was possible. He is the ultimate forgiveness coach yeah. right now. Wow. And that's just one thing we've been able to do in the last 20 years. I had to just pick one. And because you're in St. Louis, I use that one. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So Michael Brown, senior forgiveness coach. If you have any scenario where you are dealing with forgiveness or the lack thereof, you need someone to come in and do a workshop or facilitate something. Michael Brown Sr. can come in and do workshops and trainings on forgiveness. Who oh, better? Man. I love that. I'm looking at your shirt. For those that can't see it, it says purposed, chosen, blessed, saved, loved. I am that one. What's the meaning behind that? There's a pastor. He's an associate pastor for Lakewood Church in Houston, Joel Oystein's church. His name is Pastor John Gray. And he's come up to the prison and he's done workshops with the guys. And he came, was like, listen, man, I just want to come serve. And this is actually one of his shirts that I got from his, from his church. Mm. So we had 
Stedman Graham come in from Chicago a few times, talk to the guys. We've had Pastor John Gray come in from me, from his, from, oh, I'm about to get in trouble. I'm about to say the name is church wrong. <laughs> oh, I can't get the name of his church. Why is it like flip my mind? I got, um, get it to me and, and I'll make sure we'll get it on the, we'll no, put it on the page. I'm, I'm, I'm bugging right now. I know it's with an R. <laughs> How we do it on time? Relentless. Relentless Church in right. Greenville, South Carolina. But yeah. he's associate pastor for Lakewood down in um for Joel Oystein. He comes up. We've had a lot of people come in and just share and build with the guys. Yeah. We had people come from Detroit. We had a brother flying from Utah. We had the Mormon delegation came in last week and just shared <laughs> some information. Okay. Um, we it, can't, it's, we, it's too late to give out um, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but we can definitely give out good information. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, man, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got a lot of work to do uh, today. You're heading down to the prison. Um, but it, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Um, I, I would love to keep this conversation going. Um, and let's do a part two. Let, yeah, for sure. Let's do a part two. And, and maybe we can do it you know, in person next time if you're in St. Louis. Yes, um, but uh, thank you again for your time, Andre. This has been uh, very enlightening. Thank you. Yeah, well, again, I appreciate them. And like I said, this, my book will be out in January, so hopefully I'll get it and follow up. Let's go to my website and pre-order the book, and life is good. What? <laughs> get, get the whole story. The, the name of the book? Uh, oh, I mean, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm lost today. Ambassador of Hope, Turning Poverty in Prison into a Purpose-Driven Life. I love that. Uh, and your website? AndreNorman.com. AndreNorman.com. Beautiful, man. Thank you again Thank so much. You. All right. All right. Take care.